0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter two. While you're turning to that, uh, we we will in a moment uh, pray for our sister church that's having their first service today, Rivercrest Presbyterian Church. Adam Williams is planting, and uh, we want to pray for them for those that are. Joining with them for the well-wishers that are there with them as well. In John chapter 2, this is what it says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.'" Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers, his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, even as we mentioned, we do want to pray for our brothers and sisters at uh, Rivercrest Presbyterian. We thank you that that you've given us a, a small role in the planting of that church. You have all the glory. We pray that they would be encouraged today, and especially that there would be those from uh, the community that don't know you that would uh, become a part of of that fellowship. And Lord, now we would ask that you would open your word to us as we seek to uh, know you better, you have preserved this account of this first sign. Will you teach us of it? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get into uh, the actual account we, we have here, although this is a part of the account, uh, I want us to, to look very briefly at at the, the nature of Jesus' miracles, because it's referred to, if you look down in verse 11, we see a, a little bit of insight. And uh, each time there's a miracle, we will uh, we'll maybe flesh that out a little bit more in terms of how we are to understand uh, the miracles, the signs, the healings, and so on. But this is what it says in, in verse 11. This, the first of his signs... And I want to remind you, that's this, this is the third day as it's being recorded. So early, front end of his ministry. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, by declaring that the, the first of the signs, uh, here's one of the things that, that that does. We're, we're coming up, uh, you know, we've just passed Christmas, and, and some of these things are on, on TV before Christmas, but you'll see them again before Easter on the History Channel and some of these, uh, some other channels, Discovery and so on, where they have uh, programs about the lost gospels or the, the apocryphal gospels and, and things like that. And uh, I don't ever tell anyone not to watch anything. They're fine to watch. Just don't get your theology from, from them. Uh, or maybe I should just say anywhere on TV. That's not the best place to get, get your theology or understanding of, of history, Christian history, from. But uh, one, of, one of the things uh, is that there are these apocryphal gospels. In other words, Gospels that the church has not recognized as being inspired by God, as coming from him. But some of them were written around the same times as the gospels. And in some of those, it talks about some of the miracles Jesus did growing up. And uh, this contradicts that. Says this is the first of the signs. Uh, A couple of them come to mind uh, about the ones they talk about uh, Jesus doing. And by the way, the Quran even even mentions uh, uh, one of these. One of them is uh, he was a little, uh, supposedly, when he was a little child, uh, he's playing with his friends and he gets some clay and he forms some birds. And, uh, and they're really good, and it's entertaining his friends. And he makes them fly away. Could make for a pretty popular little friend, I would think. If uh... <laughs> uh, another, another one is that, uh, the, as the story goes, they're out in the desert. And Mary is, is thirsty, needs some refreshment. And so, Jesus caused the 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 palm tree that had fruit on it to bow down and until Mary could pick the fruit and drink and be refreshed, and then he let the the tree go back up now now there's a couple things with these those two accounts um, first of all we don't see them in in the scripture, but also just The you know, this verse tells us that this is the first of his signs. So, in other words, he didn't grow up doing signs. And don't forget, remember, his own family had a hard time believing he was the savior, right? So, it's not like he, you know, he grew up and he was amazing people all the time with his miracles, they had a hard time with that. But not only that. His miracles were always for a purpose. And that purpose was never primarily for the, the comfort of a person or the convenience or even primarily for the, the benefit of the recipient. Those were never the primary goals. Now, there are people that benefited from it. It helped them but that wasn't the the primary reason. And further, they were never just for entertainment, just to wow people or to um, uh, entertain people like that one I mentioned did. Instead, this verse tells us it was to manifest his glory so what what it was what the miracle did is it showed the disciples more of God and the result it says was they believed now they were just starting to follow him but here's the first sign that caused them to believe in a deeper way so throughout the scripture and we'll as i said we'll talk about this more uh, miracles were always to uh, uh, affirm or reaffirm a new revelation coming. That's why you'll see in the Old Testament and, and throughout the Scripture kind of clusters of miracles. You have them around Moses and Elijah. You have them around Jesus. You have them around the apostles, the the planting of the church, and the new uh, new revelation giving. And then basically in between but also after those, We see them taper off and we just don't see them because the the primary purpose was affirming the truth of the revealed word of God and now the scripture's completed. So let's take a a look at uh, this account. Uh, What we have is uh, Mary's going to a wedding and it says Jesus and his disciples were also uh, invited to the wedding. Now, weddings in those days they they are pretty elaborate nowadays many of them and and yet in that in that day so they could sometimes go for 5 days so that now that's a wedding okay and the host and the master of the feast would be providing for sometimes the whole little town for during that time. So <clears throat> we have them get to a point, and, and we don't know why they ran out of wine, whether, well, we won't speculate, but uh, I, I think one possible reason could be that uh, you know, Jesus and his disciples and maybe some other guests they weren't planning on were there, it doesn't matter why, they ran out of wine Mary turns to Jesus and says, they got no more wine. And that could be tough on the host. Could be a big embarrassment and and difficult for the host. And Jesus basically says, uh, you know, woman, what's that got to do with me? My time has not yet come. And we will see that phrase Throughout his ministry, where he was, he was in, in essence saying, "Look, I, you know, there's a time when I'm going to be revealing myself, and a time when I'm going to the cross, and and uh, and this isn't that time yet." So Mary doesn't really answer; she just says to the servants, "Do whatever he says to do." And so he does something. He sees these, uh, um, these big vessels. Now, it says they were uh, 20 to 30 uh, gallons. Those are big pots. And they were used for purification rites, which the, the Jews of that day had all kinds of purification rites, they washed their hands, you know, they, they would have, uh, uh, that before a meal, after a meal, when they would come in from being outside, they would purify their household, various things, and and so on. So that wouldn't be uncommon to have those there. But he says, fill them up with water. says they filled them to the brim. So you got a lot of, of gallons. And then, basically, uh, they dipped into it, took it to the master of the feast, and he didn't know where it came from. Uh, The the servants did. And uh, master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said, you know, this is highly unusual, because what's unusual is usually the best wine, the good wine, you know, you serve that first, and then... Um, after people have been drinking a while, and let's just say maybe they're not as discerning at whether they're still drinking <laughs> the best wine or not, then you bring out the cheap stuff. That's when you bring out the gallons of, you know, and of, of wine and so on. And he said, this is, uh, you know, that's usually how it works. So that's basically the account. That's what took place. Now let's, let's look at the meaning of this because I, I'm convinced there's a main thrust and purpose of this miracle and we're going to get to that. But I want to share several things that we can uh, draw out of this passage as well. And the first thing is that Jesus sanctifies all of life. Verses one and two. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that uh, this is the occasion Jesus chooses to perform his first miracle. His presence itself sanctifies, and what I mean by that word is it makes it holy. His presence there at uh, at this wedding makes it holy, and the church down through the centuries has uh, recognized uh, that for him to choose the uh, a wedding here between a man and a woman to have his first sign, his first miracle, is of significance. In fact, uh, the Anglican book of Common Prayer talks about marriage being an honorable estate that, here's what it says, Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he did or he wrought in Cana of Galilee. And then, of course, we see Paul later using uh, the, the scene of a marriage, the wedding, as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's significant that Christ was at a wedding in uh, manifesting who he was to the world. But secondly, I think it's significant that Jesus was even invited. To go to a wedding. He was the kind of guy that was invited and would go. Now let me me explain that. Some of his disciples, this might have been the first party they'd been to in quite a while. Because who had they been following? John. John the witness. And we know that his life was ascetic. He did not do uh, things like go to parties willingly. We see, uh, in in fact, his his lifestyle, but even his message was a, a stern message of repentance. De Graff uh, points out that John, by his whole life, he said and showed that we have forfeited everything by our sins. He was a preacher of penitence. And then he says, the Lord Jesus, on the other hand, said and showed that he would restore everything to us by making atonement for our sins. So here we see a shift from, here's John, the last of the Old Testament type prophets, to Jesus, where the good news is coming, the gospel is coming, and there is joy associated with the gospel. We read over in Matthew eleven, nineteen. 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, he was none of those. He wasn't a, a sinner, he wasn't a tax collector, he wasn't a drunkard, and he wasn't a glutton, because those would have been sin. But the fact that he was accused of it showed people in that day, and it shows us that that's where he found himself, with real people who had real needs for the gospel. And he showed that you can be among those people without without partaking in the sin involved. And so he shows us this beautiful picture of what life can be here, in this world, even though we live in a fallen world, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And Jesus showed us how to do that. He said it's, it's doable. And it's not about what you eat. It's not about what you drink. It's who are you honoring, who are you pleasing when you do it. There's a second thing I think we can see here and that's Mary's example to us of approaching Jesus. Look at verse three to five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, first I want to make a clarification because some commentators take uh, that phrase where he says, uh, uh, Woman, he calls you know, his mom, Woman, and some commentators say he was rebuking her at this point. I don't buy that. Here's why he uses that, that same phrase when he's on the cross and uh, the disciple John and his mother were at the foot of the cross, and he says, woman, behold your son. So in this case, it's not like him saying, lady. You know, that's not what he's saying to to his mother. Instead, here's the best I can can think of in, in terms of a parallel, and that would be, I have two daughters and uh, some granddaughters. And as my daughters were growing up and still, a lot of times I'll say, girl, girl, you know, I'll address them, hey, girl, I'll address them that way. And they know I'm not treating them like some person I don't know their real name they know from me, now the granddaughters are kind of catching on to that. Sometimes they've corrected me by inserting their name, you know. It's not girl, it's, you know. And, but I think they're catching on that that's a, from me, it's a, a term of endearment. And that's what I believe we see here when he speaks to his mother. I... I don't think this encounter is exactly um, a situation where we could say she was praying to him, but I still think there, there's a lesson here. And and this, as I was studying this passage, just kind of chased me down and and grabbed me this week. Um, how she talked to Jesus. Here's what she does. She tells him the problem. And then, basically, she leaves it up to him to solve the problem. And then she assumes that he's going to do something. That's, isn't that what we see here? So, she, she says, there is no wine. I, we don't have any indication that she had a clue that he was going to make some wine. She'd never seen him make the best wine. Uh, She'd never seen him do a miracle. But she informs him. And then she leaves it to him. And then she said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. So here's here's where it kind of grabbed me this week is when when I pray, here's my tendency Um, Lord, here's the problem. And I, I think it's always fine for us. I'm not, I don't have any illusion that I'm informing him something he doesn't know. But I think it's fine for us to tell him, here's the issue. But then what I tend to do is, is say, and I've been thinking about this, here's how you should solve this. Here's what would be best for me and everyone else. So it's one of those, maybe, for me, not knowing when to to stop, maybe I should just say, Lord, here it is. There is sickness. And then trust that whatever he does is going to be what's best. And not only will it be what's best, it may be something I can't even imagine you know, here he made, he made wine. Who would have imagined that? Nobody. Nobody that was there. We wouldn't have imagined it if we didn't hear about this. But then when she says, do whatever he says, she had an expectation he was going to tell him something. Now, again, I don't. this isn't a situation of prayer, but that spoke to me in terms of my own prayer and, and how I think that would be a better way for me, to to approach him. Look at uh, now, thirdly, the response of Jesus. And that's in 6 through 10. I just read it to you. Uh, What he does is he makes the best wine out of the water. And remember, uh, usually the best wine was served first and then the cheaper wine. And here's what I want you to remember. Whether you know anything about wine or not, most people know that the best wine is going to be an aged wine, not one that was made a second ago. So what's that tell us? Well, it tells us that sometimes... God creates with the appearance of age. So what difference does that make? Well, for one thing, we know that he did that in the garden, if we believe the account of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created, but they had age. They, you know, they didn't begin as a cell and then a divide and so on. They had the uh, the appearance of age even though They were created instantaneously. So, when we talk about the age of the universe, a lot of people decide how old the universe is by studying rocks. And I'm not opposed to archaeology or geology. Uh, That would be geology. Um, But here's a question could it have been that he created the world and the universe with the appearance of age? I don't know. But we know he's capable of doing that. I don't think that fact is necessary for the Bible to be true, but if you hold to a 624-hour day view of creation, this fits. That perhaps He created in that way. Now, here's the big question in in this passage. Why those jars? It says in verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. So, words are important In the scripture. If there's a phrase there that you're wondering, I wonder why that's there, like stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, well, why does it tell what kind of jars they are? What difference does that make? That's the question we should ask, because if it's recorded in scripture, there's something. Uh, that we should try to understand about it. So we got these 20 to 30-gallon jars, um, six of them filled to the brim, so 120 to 180 gallons of water and then wine. Uh, Again, these would have been used for all kinds of ritual cleansings uh, that were required to fulfill the Jewish law. Here's what we need to remember. Remember? The ritual cleansing wasn't really cleaning anything, okay? In other words, it, it wasn't a cleanliness thing in terms of uh, wash your hands for 20 seconds and then they will be clean or use this kind of soap or whatever. It was a ritual thing. And I have to tell you, you know, baptism doesn't really wash away sin, It's the same type of thing. It was symbolic of a cleansing that was to come. And so uh, these rites, the rites of the Jewish people, were pointing toward a day when there would be a true purification, not just a symbolic one. So what does Jesus do? He replaces all that water with wine, the best wine. So if someone went over to the jars to get some water for the rite of purification, he would find wine instead. Now let's think about what wine symbolized in the scripture. I want to go two directions with this. One uh, is that what we see is that this is the transition, as I said, from the Old Testament To the New Testament, Uh, the Old Testament prophets were continually looking forward to uh, the feast in the kingdom of God. Uh, Wine is the standard image in the Old Testament of the New Covenant, the gospel blessing that was to come. Joel three eighteen, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Psalms talks about wine gladdening a man's heart. Now, sure, there are lots of warnings about the abuse of it throughout the Scripture, about moderation and against drunkenness. But wine, when used properly, is a beautiful picture of the joy that was to come. Proverbs 3 9 and 10 honor the lord with your wealth, with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce here it's talking about worship then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine so it's t- it's an abundance here so that's the idea of uh, bursting with wine you have been blessed is the idea so that's ta- that's the one direction it's talking about Wine is a sign of joy and plenty and blessing. One commentator put it this way. Christ has come into the world to fulfill and terminate the old order and to replace it by a new worship, which surpasses the old as much as the wine surpasses water. So he deliberately, he said, I'm going to take these vats that... That were so important to the, the Jewish way, but they were pointing towards something. And I'm going to fill them. I'm going to fill them to show you that that something is coming. It's here and it's coming. So he's replacing those old symbols, those old religious rites with wine saying a new day is here, a day of joy, of celebration, a day of feasting, a wedding, rejoice. And so he tells them. But then the other direction is we read, for instance, in John 6, where Jesus relates the true drink to his blood. And when Jesus instituted the the Lord's Supper, he related the wine to his blood. So it was the blood of the Lamb of God that took away the sin of those who believe in him. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine what Jesus made, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Jesus showed them at this wedding this first sign. He said, that day is coming. And he's initiating the coming of that kingdom. So what do we look forward to? Well, the last book of the Bible Revelation 19 says, And the angel said to me, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So he began his ministry with a miracle at the wedding. And we who trust in Christ will enjoy this marriage supper of the Lamb where we will feast and we will drink the wine, the best that he has made as we enjoy eternal life don't settle for empty vessels of religion they'll never satisfy your souls but drink deeply of the only one who can satisfy that deep longing to know God and that's Jesus let's bow together Lord, will you help us, as it were, to drink deeply on you by believing, by trusting in you alone, not trusting in any outward purification rites, any outward achievements you showed um, those are of no value, but trusting in what you did and who you are. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.